1: Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today I'm honored to have two distinguished guests with me, Dr. Elena Gertzman and Dr. Barbara Rosenwein. Elena Gertzman is a professor of art history at Case Western Reserve University. Professor Gertzman specializes in medieval art and issues of memory, perception, multisensory reception, and medieval concepts of emotion and affectivity. Barbara Rosenwein is an American historian who is a professor emerita of history at Loyola University, Chicago. She is an expert in medieval history, and she has written a number of, number of influential books. She is also an expert on the history of emotions. And today, they are here to talk with us about a wonderful book they wrote called The Middle Ages in 50 Objects, published by Cambridge University Press. Alina and Barbara, welcome to New Books Network.
2: Thank you very much. It's fun to be here.
1: Thank you for having us. Uh, before we start talking about the book, uh, and before I start, I'd say to the listeners, I wish they could see the book. It's, an, it's not an object to read, but it's something to see as well. It's a visual feast. There are 50 beautiful pictures or 50 objects with a beautiful picture, which you will talk about some of them. But before talking about the book, can you tell us a little about yourself, how you became interested in the history of Middle Ages and also art history?
2: Well, I'll begin. Uh, uh, I became interested in the Middle Ages as an undergraduate when I had a wonderful course with a wonderful teacher, Lester Little, and then I decided I wanted to be like him, so I (laughs) went on and got my PhD and remained very, very enthusiastic and, and still remain very enthusiastic about the field, though I have now branched out into what I call, uh, what is called the history of emotions. And I'm interested in integrating the Middle Ages into a broader framework uh, of the the whole history of uh, emotions insofar as I can do the kind of research that's necessary for it, which means I have to be able to read the languages, which limits me to some extent a lot um but anyway um and uh i'll let lena alina uh, uh, tell us about her, her own experience
0: sure well um so i have uh well i grew up in estonia i grew up in thailand and that is a medieval place and so i guess i love. The middle ages from the very moment my grandfather took me to see you know, paintings in the old town um i have worked broadly on jewish and christian arts of the long middle ages um i've published quite a bit on all manner of things on manuscripts and on sculpture and monumental painting and on prints it's an extraordinary time period, um, it fascinates me, it fascinated me from the very beginnings of my study of art history, and it continues to excite me to this day. So my branching currently into medieval Jewish art also, well, as Barbara said, necessitates a whole new world of languages. So I am now learning classical Hebrew, and it's, it might kill me. But um, I'm, I'm at
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's impossible to study the history of the Middle Ages without knowing a couple of languages, at least. At <laughs> least.
2: Many, many, many. Yeah. many yeah. yeah. The more the better.
1: So, how did this book come about? What was the story of this book? And uh, what was the purpose of uh, publishing this beautiful book?
2: Uh, well, uh, Alina and I have known each other for quite some time. At some point during that time, the British Museum published uh, the history of the world in 100 objects, which I thought uh, was a great idea, but not terribly convincingly done. Uh, The pictures were small. They were in black and white. And uh, the explanations were very, very long. So it was a very big book, a very thick book, but not a very beautiful book. And if you're talking about the objects in the British Museum, it seemed to me, you should talk about what, what they looked like and why they have remained and why they're in the British Museum for that matter. And because I knew Alina, and I knew her brilliant studies of medieval art, and because we were good friends, I said, we should do something. And I'll let Alina take it from here.
0: (laughs) Well, so I have been Barbara's uh, admirer long before she knew of my existence. And so when Barbara said, let's do something together, I you know, leaped with joy and said, yes, yes, absolutely. Let's do it. Um, we have known each other for a while. By then, we met in Chicago when I I taught there briefly um, and then I moved to teach at Case Western. And I do want to make it clear that this is a program that is jointly administered with the Cleveland Museum of Art. So it's a joint graduate program. I came here because um, of really various factors, but mainly because of the medieval collections of the museum that are among the best of the best, astonishingly. Um, So we teach with the collection. I teach among these objects. I bring my students to the galleries all the time. They become integral part of what I do. And so this kind of collection which is you know really across the street from my university it just simply seemed to call out for such a project so it's a comprehensive collection it has some gaps but it is extraordinarily rich um and i have also because i teach as i said in the galleries i've seen firsthand the way that museum goers are drawn to the medieval galleries and then I've also seen just how little they know about the objects on view there, and how little they understand them despite the labels. So that really was the seed, the genesis of this project.
1: And uh, oh, you want to? Answer. I
2: just would like to add that both Alina and I are terribly interested in teaching, as what she just said made clear, and so uh it, it, it there is a um a didactic or better a pedagogical purpose to this book and that is to teach the middle ages but pleasantly kindly beautifully uh making things as clear as possible making the attraction of the field as clear as possible, and yet leaving open room for more study, more reading, more knowledge about it. Uh, Hence, you don't only have these beautiful objects in this book, but you also have small maps that orient the reader to where you are talking about. How many of our readers would know where Coruscant was? Or is, and the uh, the map shows it. Of course, you have to be a little bit sophisticated to be able to read a map, but we hope our readers are at that level. And
0: right. I would also add, I think that, and I, you know, I don't want to speak to Barbara, but we both yearned for the the kind of true collaboration, right? The, the one that's only achievable across different disciplines, right? Different fields of inquiry. So I'm an art historian. Barbara is a historian. Um, and this this is the kind of collaboration that really allowed us, at least it allowed me to break out from the confines of my own narrow scholarly expertise and really learn. And we we'll learn from each other quite a bit, I think. Yeah, I love that, Barbara, yeah, than she did it
1: from
2: me. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I think based on what you have just said, it's quite clear why the listeners need to have the book in hand. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> again, I can't emphasize how great this book is. Um, so, let's, you you mentioned Cleveland Museum of Art. Um, first of all, let's talk about the methodology in this. So, you, you've chosen 50 objects, and it's not, as you mentioned, it's not only artistic, but it's also the history of the Middle Ages. So what was the organizing principle, the methodology there? And uh, how, why did you choose 50 objects to sort of represent the history of Middle Ages, which is, roughly speaking, a thousand years of history? It's a broad question, so the floor is open. <laughs> uh,
2: well, uh, Alina has already mentioned the Cleveland Institute of Art, which is a museum, which is so absolutely rich and marvelous, Secondly, the uh, we really wanted to show that the Middle Ages wasn't just Western Europe. That is a very old-fashioned idea and doesn't belong anywhere on the shelves today. Secondly, uh, or thirdly, uh, 50 objects is not overwhelming. You can put this book on your cocktail table and leave it there, but you could also read it from cover to cover even, uh, savoring certain objects more than others perhaps, and get a sense of the evolution of the Middle Ages across time, but then also across space and Uh, topics, topically.
0: And I will say that because I know the collection so very well, um, I knew which topics we wanted to address. I knew which objects would be particularly felicitous for that uh, kind of discussion. I knew what the collection had to offer, in other words. And so uh, we came together around number 50 and we looked for a very long time, and we balanced out objects, um, you know, on offer for a very long time until we came to what I think is a is a very good spectrum of themes
1: and
2: meanings. And because we're being interviewed by you, obviously, you agree. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so let's talk about uh, material culture an object-oriented history. Why is that the Middle Ages, the medieval history, is better illuminated by its material culture, which is the approach you've taken here?
2: No, I don't think that we're saying the Middle Ages is better illuminated by it, though I could make an argument in that direction. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the Middle Ages is well illustrated by it, because material objects are... Sensible, available to the senses. You need not read to use and understand, at least in part, material objects, beautiful objects. You can just look. You can just feel. You can let your eyes caress. You can let your fingers caress. Everything in the Middle Ages is... uh, everything written even in the middle ages is material it's on a manuscript it's written by hand. It's on parchment. Parchment has a feel, actually. It has two feels because it has two different sides. And they're different parchments for different animals. And I'm talk I'm taking too long to talk. But there's very good reason to be thinking about material culture in the Middle Ages. And just one more point. The Middle Ages, unlike ourselves, identified more than five Senses, because not all the senses in medieval philosophy, theology, and even popular thought, not all the senses were physical. There were spiritual mm-hmm. senses as well. Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know if I can add anything to this. Um, the Middle Ages is a sensual era when I teach students, even in the museum, in front of these objects. We always want to take them out of their cases. We always want to touch them. We want to hear them. We want to smell them. I'm very lucky that we do have a chance to do that. The curators allow us from time to time to do object studies. And you can tell just how much students learn from just those moments Mm. um, of of looking and hearing and smelling and touching. Um, Because... The Middle Ages is an object-oriented in many ways era. Maybe not more than others. Uh, maybe not just object-oriented, but there is that material pull that is extraordinarily strong.
2: And I would like you, Elena, if you wouldn't mind, to talk a little bit about uh, the wonderful um, uh, fountain that you uh, that we we did profile in the middle ages in 50 objects and that is a great example of sound sight smell and of course even because it's a preliminary to taste
0: ah uh, so it's a that is something that i wish we could we were able to show so it's an extraordinary object it's really one of a kind that survives and we have it and it is a truly multi-sensory object it's it's um it's a table fountain um it's utterly gorgeous it was meant to be seen it was meant to be heard as the streams go and hit the little wheels that spin and they ring the bells It was meant to be surrounded by the smells of, say, the feast hall. It was meant to be touched. Everything about this object involves the senses. I will say that we're launching um, something. We're launching a HoloLens app that will allow us, I hope, to get a little bit closer to this kind of perception this multi-sensory perception where we can you know pop on our lenses and animate the fountain in real time within its reconstructed environment and hear it and see it and if all goes well in the next couple of years maybe even touch it
1: Wow, that that's amazing.
0: <laughs> and none of this actually, this idea would not have come along without me writing this
1: book with Barbara. Mm-hmm. It it is really fascinating it's- because when I listen to you, and I, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions about the Middle Ages, Dark Ages, that nothing, uh, it was like a, a domination of the Catholic Church with the people, art was there, and then suddenly there was the Renaissance. But when I look at this picture, sometimes I see manuscripts. Just I guess a couple of weeks ago I came across this manuscript. It was a digital manuscript. I think it was called Blue Book of Hours. Sure. The manuscript was it was it would just blew my, blew my mind where I just well, was just looking at it for hours, going through the pages, zooming in, and of course, all the objects that you have put in this book, which is only the tip of the iceberg. Um let let me go to the next uh, part of this interview. um, so the book comes in four sections of 50 objects in four parts the first part is the holy and the faithful the second part the sinful and the spectral third daily life and its fictions and fourth death and its aftermath so can you talk about this structure and why you decided to kind of classify these objects into these four parts
2: well as you said uh the Middle Ages is often thought of in terms of doom and gloom. So we didn't want to have a section called doom and gloom. (laughs) Uh, We wanted to have uh, sections that did deal with uh, difficult topics like death uh, and its aftermath, which is less difficult for many in the Middle Ages. We also wanted to uh, point out, make clear that there was a daily life in the Middle Ages that while uh, perhaps some of the people in the Middle Ages were depressed, as many are today, there were a lot of pleasures and a lot of joys and a lot of things to enjoy in the Middle Ages. Uh I'll let, let Ali talk about the, the first two then. Uh, well, so
0: I want I to to add that we really played around with the structure and we wanted, you know, if the structure was predicated on the objects we chose, right? Um, and we wanted to have them stand on their own, but also place them in conversation with one another. And so you will see this mirroring of the structure, you know, the holy and the faithful, the sinful and the spectral. So there are just some juxtapositions, but also conversations. Um, we wanted really with, I think, this structure allows us to give you a fairly holistic vision of the Middle Ages, or as holistic as we can, and at the same time, each object then within. Is, is a glimpse, a bit of a wellspring of this associative knowledge, and this is how we've written it. We started with the object, and then we spun the narrative that touches on other objects within those parts, and then outside of them. And as Barbara said before, this is how this book is meant to be read. You can sit down, and you can read it to cover to cover, or you can just pick an object a day. Uh, you can bring it to any museum and find something similar and read it in tandem with what you've seen.
2: But and, wouldn't uh, it have been odd had we not talked about the holy? Oh, wouldn't it have been odd had we not talked about the unholy? <laughs> uh, about daily life? I mean, what? What? in a way, yes, the objects told us the categories. Of course, the objects were chosen, carefully chosen, and I must credit uh, Elena for for that uh, more than myself. I, I agreed or disagreed in some instances, but she did a wonderful job, I think, because she knew the collection so very, very well, but also uh, because that collection itself uh, had some of these Ideas in mind, uh, some of these topics in mind, so that uh, the these uh, do uh, represent much of what we know about the Middle Ages. Not absolutely everything, of course. Alina has just written a marvelous, marvelous book on emptiness, and uh, that has nothing to do with. <laughs> Well, it has to do with absence of objects. Uh, So, uh, you know, that was a topic that was not uh, (laughs) one that we could cover. But uh, actually, uh, even uh, emptiness uh, is implied by uh, some of these objects themselves and the way that they existed in space and in a space that might itself have been, uh, to the viewers, quite abstract. And we saw it as very important to give the context. Uh, what, What were these? These objects are very beautiful in and of themselves. But uh, looking at them just as themselves, they mean rather little to us in the modern world, just as I'm sure that in um, maybe just 100 years, uh, students will take a look at a typewriter and not know what the context was in which that made some sense. What letters are, what?
0: I think that's done. I think this is this has already <laughs> occurred. I mean I would also say that the structure is in a way informed by our own interests and our own expertise you know if you read the book you will see that a scholar of emotions um, has written <laughs> quite a bit of it uh, you can see that someone very interested in interactive devotional sculpture has written quite a bit of it. The third section, daily life and its fictions, in particular, was important to me. Um, Medieval objects are often indiscriminately used in classes uh, not taught by art historians as illustrations of daily life, as if they are not ideologically fraught, as if they somehow can tell a very straightforward story Of what life in the Middle Ages really was. And this is where the part of fictions comes in is that every single object like this, really every single object, has to be unpacked very carefully. Nothing is straightforward, nothing is as it seems, and nothing certainly is illustrative.
2: That's absolutely right. And it is, and I have a textbook. Uh, of the Middle Ages, and I have avoided as fully as possible to make that cardinal mistake of saying, ah, this is how medieval people loved. They loved in orchards.
0: (laughs) Yeah, very, very beautifully dressed peasants plowed the fields. Exactly.
1: Mm -hmm. And uh, another I just want to kind of debunk the myth a little bit because, um, uh, you know, before before we started recording um, and Alina, you were not there, Barbara just joined the platform earlier. We were talking about, I studied English literature and my expertise was on the 16th, uh, sorry, 17th, and 18th century uh, British literature. So it has almost nothing to do with the Middle Ages, but I was always fascinated by the Middle Ages. And I became sort of an enthusiast in the history of Middle Ages, and I read just different books and talk to people about that. And um, I was also plagued myself by the idea that the Middle Ages is exclusively a European-centered time period. So when it's the Middle Ages, it's Europe, as if the rest of the world did not exist. And again, when I before reading this book... I was just amazed to see objects from uh, from a Mongol Empire, from Islam, Byzantine, several of them from Iran, where I come from originally. And I said, yeah, it makes sense. These countries also existed. They also had a history. They were quite influential in the Middle Ages. Uh, there were very rich cities and influential cities in, in, in Africa at that time. And one of the great things about this book is that it sort of broadens the horizons. It's not only objects from Europe, it's from all over the world. So can you talk about these geographies or why you decided to kind of expand that horizon, let's say?
2: Uh, we're part of a, of a movement almost, I think, amongst medievalists to break out of the European uh, uh, straitjacket. Uh, The old uh, textbooks dealt just with Western Europe, France, Germany, Italy, because of the papacy, a little bit of Spain. Uh, What about Bulgaria? What about uh, the Byzantine world? Oh, yeah, let's pop them into one chapter. A whole Islamic world and Byzantine world into one chapter going from 500 to 1500. It was crazy. It made no sense. Why even bring them in if they have nothing to do with the Middle Ages proper? But they did. They did. They were enormously important even for that straightjacketed Western Europe. So we wanted to... Uh, participate in this larger vision the larger vision still hasn't affected so many textbooks I'm glad to say it has affected my own but many many textbooks are still Europe in the middle ages the European middle ages as though teachers can never teach the whole period but as you can see you can teach it in 50 objects I mean you can you can do it in 25 words or less if you want to. So um, that those are some of the reasons why, and I'm sure Alina has more to offer.
0: No, I think uh, this is exactly right. Um, I think we were mindful of being, we were careful not to impose the framework of the Middle Ages to the rest of the world, because the idea in and of itself comes out of European and American way of conceiving history. Um, So a lot of uh, cultures, flourishing cultures all over the world and what we think of as the Middle Ages would certainly never refer to themselves as the Middle Ages. So we needed to be very careful and respectful of these other cultures. But we also wanted to reach out to those that were interconnected. I guess interconnected is a good way of putting it. So we wanted to give a glimpse of that interconnected world. Um, you know, global is a fraught term, and I don't really want to use it here. Uh, but it allows you to really open the doors to the kind of, you know, intercultural openness, and also in our case, new transdisciplinary openness. So we ranged broadly in geographies and we ranged broadly temporally to allow the reader to glimpse bits of that world. And these are shifting bits, right? All of these geographies were shifting, all of the, you know, political affiliations that we talk about were shifting as well. So it was the world in flux, in a thousand years in flux or more. Um, and that, that's what we tried to do, to give a clear sense of that.
2: Yes, and I think that the maps help with that, because you take a look at, you know, the Byzantine Empire in one period, and then you take a look whoa, it's not the same Byzantine Empire. And Bulgaria seems to have taken over much of what used to be part of the Byzantine Empire and so on, so that you really do get a sense of this kaleidoscope of cultures that are shifting and uh, uh, and yet... Uh, uh, are influencing each other and are not always at war. Um,
1: I will ask a couple of questions and then we'll talk about some of the objects in the book. Um, you, both, you both teach and you love teaching. Uh, how do you envision this book to be used in classes? Or how can teachers use it as a textbook in class? I'll let
0: Barbara start, I think.
2: Well, uh, I should say that I've have retired, so I'm professor emerita. But I do love teaching, so there. Um, I uh, I would bring it in as a, as a uh, not as a textbook, but as a supplementary book of medieval art and culture. And uh, so it could be an assigned book, it's not all that expensive, uh, alongside other books, readings, texts, and so on. I uh, I also think though, that it belongs outside of the classroom. I don't think just 18, 19 and 20 year olds want to learn about the middle ages. Um, Though I don't know your age, Morteza, and I know that you're not elderly, I would say that you're beyond 18, 19, 20, but you're interested in the Middle Ages, and how are you going to find out about it? And I think that this this is a good way to just kind of enter into it and find out about it. So it's teaching, but it's not necessarily teaching in the classroom. Mm.
0: I I don't know if I can put it any better. Um, You know, we conceived of it not as the textbook. We conceived of it as part of a variety of core readings for any course, really, undergraduate or graduate. I use the book in both. Um, I use it differently in both, but I use it with great success. And. It, of course, doesn't simply belong in the classroom. It does belong in the hands of a museum goer. And not just a Cleveland museum goer. It belongs in the hands of someone who goes to see the objects at the Met or at the Getty or at the British Museum. Um, anywhere really, it belongs in the hands of someone who is walking medieval streets of thailand or of Paris or or you know who is walking around Pisa and wants to know what else and what else is like it and what else is there to learn i mean we talk a lot about it's a well-worn term right public humanities but in a way this is the kind of project like this right it really seeks to bring the ideas of our field to life for curious general audiences the ones who love reading and love learning and don't necessarily have any expertise in the middle ages at all but just intellectual curiosity
1: um and again well to to add to what you just said i i it's it's a book you can have you know on your coffee table you can open it from the middle, look at one object, read it. you not only learn something about that object, the art history, but also the time curating was created and the area and the geography as well. Um, so that, that, and, and as Barbara said, yeah, I'm not 18, but anybody can read it, right? Even if it's not difficult to read, it's actually quite inviting the book. And I've had it in my, uh, um, in my living room. And when my friends come into my place, they just pick it up because the cover, I wish again, the listeners could see, it. so I do encourage you to just Google the book at least. The cover is again very inviting. You just pick it up, you browse through it, and you know before you know you've been looking at the book for at least thirty minutes. You're just going through the pages, even if you're not reading it. You're looking at the objects there.
2: <laughs> and if you right. are reading it, for each object you're only reading three pages, or or or, or, or not not more much more than that. Mm-hmm. So it's short. It's short and sweet, uh, it- and yet uh you learn a lot i think yeah
1: hope so so now let's talk about some of these objects i before the interview i remember i sent you an email because i'm from iran i was biased to choose some particular objects from there but i'm going to put my bias aside so i'll let you just talk about any of the objects that are of interest to you uh i know it's a bit challenging because you need to describe the object but maybe you can say the number of the objects so that people can you know later on Uh, more easily be able to find it and all the objects are in the museum uh in in cleveland's museum of art so i'm hoping people can just log on to the website and see the objects if they they wish so uh what are your favorite objects here
0: well let's cater to your bias how about (laughs) just a minute with you know we can talk about the incense burner it's number six in the book um And it's an extraordinary object. I have never seen anything quite like it. And, in fact, we were so worried about it not being like others, we contacted a colleague who is a specialist in medieval Islamic art to make sure that we were, in fact, right, that we were looking exactly at what we thought we were looking at. Um, You know, when I came to the museum, so it's this gorgeous incense burner. It's about... uh, you know, 14 by 13 inches, uh, maybe, and maybe four and a half thick, um, and it's, it's just this glorious, it's like it's a copper alloy body of what used to be described as a lion when I first came to the museum, and now it's called the feline incense burner, and then we think it's a lynx, actually, it has these adorable tufts in its triangular ears, and uh, just the body that is completely covered in arabesques and uh, you know the tail is curved and incised and you can remove the beast's neck and head and uh, this is how this is how it's used this is where you put uh, the burning the incense and hot coals and then the smoke wafts through the piercings in on its body. And uh, we also find, so we find an inscription on it, right, Barbara, in cufic script from Quran, which is just an extraordinary thing to find on this figurative uh, beast. Um, and it comes from a surah, I think, called Congregation. Um, and if i uh it, it's the one it's the one that that tells the the devout uh to to scatter in the land when the prayer is finished to scatter in the land and see God's bounty. and so just as the smoke scatters through the air, the devout are to scatter wow. through the land and it's just it's a it's beautiful visually it's beautiful textually, it's beautiful culturally it's just this beautiful semiotically it's just a beautiful object. I love it.
2: Yes, and we might add that it also probably was uh, used in a uh, mosque, and that is also unusual to have an anthropomorphic or actually a zoomorphic uh, object in a mosque. So it shows uh, um, creativity, freedom, uh and even a good sense of humor, mm-hmm. even in the mosque, uh, where uh, uh, you would not uh, assume that you would find these things. Um, and uh, so so I think it, it really uh, is a very important uh, object for uh, for you uh, coming from, uh, no, uh, this isn't. Uh, it's not exactly, I mean, Eastern Iran, I don't know if you've come from Eastern Iran or Western Afghanistan, we're not exactly sure where where it is from. But it uh, shows such freedom uh, and such combination of whimsy and seriousness uh, that I think is is sorely lacking in the way we think about medieval culture in general and religious culture in particular.
0: Well, Barbara, what about your favorite object?
2: (laughs) Well, I was going to talk about a very plain-ish looking altar front, which is number two. And this is an altar front either from Constantinople or Ravenna, which leads us immediately to wonder what is Istanbul doing in Italy? Uh, And immediately, uh, assuming that the reader understands this uh, map, the reader sees that the Byzantine Empire actually included much of Italy uh, when this altar front was made between, say, 540 to 600. What it is, is marble a glorious marble with striations, very simple design with a kind of mortuary uh, motif, uh, curtains drawn back, uh, figures, uh, uh, crosses where figures might be under conch shells, it shows those shells. Uh, it is, as it were, a temple with columns, and uh, and the middle of those columns is a space, uh, a empty space. <laughs>
0: Alina can talk about this. No, no, no. You talk about it, but it is an empty space. We managed an empty
2: space. It is an empty space. And yet it is the focal point of this altar front because behind or at least underneath that empty space, which is really a little window, were the relics or was one relic of a saint or saints or perhaps a contact relic, and the uh, faithful would be able to have contact with this holy object. And I should point out that although Christianity has but one God, it also has people so graced by God that they hold within their virtue the grace and powers of God. And so you can touch, not with your fingers, for goodness sake, but with, let's say, a piece of cloth, you can lower it down into this little window and touch something of the divine. Um, And um, you can see that the altar uh, celebrates that with its iconography, um, especially the palm uh, trees in the corner, which are little bits of paradise. Um, So uh, although it's a very simple uh, piece, It is an extremely important piece to tell us about history, namely about the Byzantine Empire, about the Byzantine Empire's uh, enormous reach into the West, about religion, about the locus of the holy. Um, I could talk more about uh, relics, but maybe I've said enough. (laughs) Yeah.
1: <laughs> well yeah.
0: should we say something about a non-devotional object maybe yeah. Yeah. um but about... before you say
1: so before so, yes. i was just i'd just like to add that when you were talking about these two objects i was just taking like a visual trip i was whole time i was just imagining you know for example people in a mosque praying and that incense burner uh, and then you barbara when we were explaining i was just thinking of an old uh church people kneeling down before this <laughs> altarpiece and trying maybe to touch the, mm-hmm. the religious relic. It, it's just fascinating how you see the history w- w- through this uh, let's object-oriented history we, we come to visualize it we come to feel that and I guess the audience uh, hoping they can see one of the pictures it's it's just that sensory history as well the, the history of emotions that I said we just visualize and we come to feel that history. And I could listen to you for hours, so just talk about as many objects as you want.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's not talk for hours, but uh, if we're talking about a sensual history, if we're talking about, you know, something that really transports you, I think we should talk about the mirror case. Barbara, what do you think? Um, Not a devotional piece, unless you count, you know, devotion to your beloved as a devotion, which is a different kind. So... We have in the, in, in the book, I think it's number 35, um, we have this extraordinary piece. It's a, uh ivory mirror case, you know, and you, you actually see them in, in, in a bunch of uh, medieval collections. So they were not very, 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 very rare. Um, and it's a part of the mirror case. The mirror itself is lost. It would have fit on the other side. So you imagine, you know, since you can't see it, um, this this round uh, this this round ivory, which is about ten centimeters, what is it, four inches maybe across, and it shows um, a, a man and a woman playing chess in a tent. And um, you know what they are doing is really not playing chess but they're doing something that cannot be represented in this ivory. And the chess is the game of pursuit, and it's the game of love, and they're engaging exactly in that game, and their gestures are sensual, and their movements are sensual. Um, she is, uh, she just captured one of his pieces, as it were, and she's holding it, she's caressing it in her hand, and then she. he's holding one piece as well, and she's telling him exactly where to put it on the board, so you know that this is not, not really, we're not really seeing the game of chess per se in this gorgeous tent with this magnificent couple and the ivory pieces, so you know, so this is a mirror, you would hold it in your hand, and it's ivory, and ivory is smooth, and it responds to your touch, it warms in your hand. So it is likened in the Middle Ages to skin, to the body. So you're you know, you're holding the body of your beloved as it were, and you're looking at this, you know, interaction of the game, quote unquote chess. Um, and we also think about this double sensual approach in that chess pieces in the middle ages would have been carved many of them from ivory and so we have an image of an ivory piece that is carved out of ivory itself that you yourself are holding in your hand so there is this notion of play and of whimsy and of delight that's both intellectual and sensual and that's the middle ages as well
1: yeah i guess especially the facial expressions that they're they're quite Revealing, right? They are, they're to engage in this game of love, let's say.
0: Well, I would actually uh push back against that oh. and say we have to be very careful with facial expressions um on these objects, that they often don't don't really mean what we think they mean, but the gestures are very telling. The bodily gestures, um, you know, the the way that he holds up the tentpole, the way that she holds the mm-hmm. chess piece. They they are healing and and now.
1: I'm sorry? And she's showing where to put the. And she shows exactly,
0: exactly where to put it, yes. Mm -hmm. So, in order to really see it, I suppose you have to get the book. Yes, yes, definitely.
1: (laughs) Is there another object, Barbara, that you'd like to talk about?
2: Um, Well, Alina was going to talk about the uh, death of the Virgin, so mm-hmm. I'll um that one. Um, is there one I'd like to talk about? Um, no, let's see. Um, I hadn't really thought about that, but uh, let's take a look at a, a bowl with engraved figures of vices. Number ah, that's a good one. Uh, this uh,
1: sorry which eight, number was that sorry barbara eight,
2: 18. 18 yeah 18. Um, this is a, a bronze bowl hammered punched it's incised so that the uh, vices are are uh, shown uh, uh in incised form uh, and uh, we see Uh, we see here uh, a central figure holding mirrors in both hands. She is the vice of pride, as a a written identification shows her, uh, tells us who she is. So we now know that the mirror that we just talked about, also has its dangerous side. If you look too closely within this mirror and admire yourself and your beautiful face, you are showing the vice of pride. You may be uh, uh, showing the a vice of pride, and you may be showing some other vices, and there are other vices around her, almost dancing around her. They are are idolatry, anger, envy, and lust. So we get uh, the, uh, all these are portrayed by women, Partly because the grammar of Latin makes the vices and all abstractions female, but I don't know why it does that. But uh, we also get a understanding of the crucial place of uh, of uh, uh, pride in the in the middle. But pride wasn't always considered the most important of the vices so we need to be thinking about how the vices the idea of the vices change over time Uh, and uh, uh, after uh, uh, this time uh, uh, that is this bronze bowl is late 12th uh, century second half of the 12th century by the 13th century, the chief vice was avarice. And we can understand the transformation because Western, I mean, this was this bull with the engraved figures of vices, was made in Germany. So we're still thinking about the West. In the West, uh, after Uh, 1200 actually before that in some areas uh, but certainly in the Rhinelands in Germany uh, you get the development of a commercial society that sits very poorly with traditional ideas about what was and was not virtuous human behavior and therefore I think if you were looking at a plate carved, uh, engraved in, uh, let's say, the 14th century, Boccaccio's time, you would see uh, Everest in the middle. East. So this gives us a chance to think about uh, vices, it gives us a chance to think about the meaning of commerce in the West, um, actually, uh, In uh, Iran and Khorasan, at the same time, you have a very commercial uh, uh, society that is much more at ease with commerce. And and a lot of the uh, uh, luxuries that came into the West came in indirectly via the uh, uh, Islamic world um but indirectly, not, you know, not no direct trade. Uh, and um also uh I had another idea about this. I don't know what this particular plate uh was used for. Um it may have been uh used for religious purposes, um but uh uh, it may also uh, be used uh, uh, within uh, uh, as storytelling devices uh, it may have been uh, used uh, to put up on your uh, the medieval equivalent of a mantelpiece uh, to teach um, so uh, the uh, the uses of a plate are not always not always just to eat something from
0: mm-hmm. well so i i don't know how much time we have um if you want to hear one more or not sure, oh yeah. yes Um, But what I actually want to do is I want to tell you about one of them. And then I want to ask Barbara to talk about another one. And I did not prepare this. So if it takes you by surprise, Barbara, I'm sorry. But I do want to talk about the death of the Virgin painting because we haven't talked about paintings at all. And it's a good example of how we also, you know, worked out. The, the little mysteries that creep into these objects that that haven't been solved. But Barbara, after I'm done, I'd really love for you to talk about Object 48, um, because it will allow us to address the, um, it, it's a cutting from the from the uh, choral book with uh, Isaac and Esau, I think it will allow us to talk a bit about um, Judaism and its relationship with Christianity, something that we couldn't do through Jewish objects because we didn't have any at the museum so um, the one that i really (laughs) wanted to work through and i wanted it in this book and i'm still working through it it's uh, object 45 so it's this absolutely gorgeous painting uh maybe or very early 15th century Painted in what is now modern day um, Austria uh, by Master of Heiligenkreuz, and it's the Death of the Virgin. There's a sister painting hanging in the National Gallery in DC, in Washington, DC, um, the Death of St. Clair. So when it comes from that Clarisson um, uh, context, and the painting is stunning. So it shows. The Virgin Mary, who is not quite dying, she's dead. Uh, She's lying on the bed. She's surrounded by the apostles. They all appeared from, you know, they rushed to her bedside um, from every corner of the world. St. Peter stands above her uh, in his white robes and he's reading the last rites. Um, Up above the gilded background parts, and we have This small painting of Christ holding the diminutive figure, and that's Mary's soul. He is holding it lovingly like a child in his hands. And then in front of the bed, there is an empty pillow, and it's flanked by two other apostles. And this painting, it attracts a lot of people, in part because the painter loved very long digits the fingers and the toes are astonishingly disconcertingly long um and so people gather around just to look at them uh, one of the apostles is wearing eyeglasses and that's you know one of the earlier representations so that's interesting for that i always love this painting for two things one for the pillow that sits in front of the bed and It's as if that, again, empty space, (laughs) empty space that's left for the beholder, that's left for the viewer to kneel on, to join, to close that circle of the apostles. As you stand in front of the painting, you can tell that you're included in this circle. And then another... The figure that always fascinated me and that I think will lead very nicely into the object that Barbara will talk about is the figure closest to the Virgin, the only one that lacks a halo and that betrays the characteristics that were ascribed in a lot of medieval anti-Semitic paintings to the Jews, Uh, the large nose, the curly hair, the darker skin. And this figure stands face to face with Mary and seems to be reaching towards her. And one would imagine that this is Judas. This is how Judas was usually being portrayed. But Judas by then is dead. Judas does not fit temporarily into this narrative. So I wanted to show this painting and have the readers of the book Go at it and think about who this figure might represent. He also has very odd looking uh letters written what looks like faux Hebrew on the sleeve of his garment so that was uh mm. that's one of the mysteries that I wanted the readers to ponder
1: wow that that's fascinating,
0: <laughs> I think so
1: yeah.
2: Well, 48 follows from that, uh, in that it takes up a Jewish theme. It is uh, perhaps uh, initially odd, and I use that word advisedly, because this is actually a um, tempera painting of an initial key in which the scene unfolds it is a scene uh in the initial scene in from a choral book that shows a jewish theme isaac and esau you all know the story of isaac and esau isaac a great patriarch of the church uh, and uh, uh his uh, wife uh, had uh, two sons who were born at the same time, twins, Esau and Jacob. The winner of Isaac's blessing is uh, the is the key to this story. Isaac is depicted on his deathbed. He is a beautiful. Figure with a halo around his head. He has clearly been, in this choral book, Christianized. Uh, he is, uh, it's a yarmulke, but we won't call it that, his hat uh, is red, and he is covered by a gloriously red coverlet. Uh, so he is so striking. And the issue is, he is his eyes closed, his mouth, uh, well, his his head turned to the side. He is about to die. This is his deathbed, and his wife Rebecca sends the children in. Her favorite is Jacob, but. Isaac was first, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Esau was first born. So who will, uh, whom will uh, Isaac uh, bless? This is a picture of the one who is not blessed. His hair is all mussed up. He's got a beard and he hasn't shaved in ages. He has a a weapon? How could he have a weapon when he goes in to see his father on his deathbed? He's clearly not going to be blessed. It is Jacob who will go in, uh, uh, who will go in first, and who will uh, be dressed in Esau's smelly hunter's garments. His hands wrapped in lambskin, and so he seems to be the firstborn, Esau. He has already received his father's blessing, and Esau doesn't get it. Why this in a choral book, a Christian choral book? Because for Christians, the blessing of um, Jacob was the blessing of the new people, the uh, the not the, the the people of the New Testament. While Esau came first, he was not the blessed. Uh, however, for Jews, that was quite the contra- contrary. Jacob was blessed because he represented the Israel. And because he represented the chosen people. So the two cultures, so, so diverse in their beliefs, actually not that diverse in their beliefs, but they thought so, uh, really uh, uh, interpreted this image in very different but in equally pious way. And the artist of this is very interesting because this comes from northern Italy, where the artist may very well have known what Jews looked like on their deathbeds, since uh, it would be possible for a North Italian, uh, Jews uh, mingled, uh, Jews were, uh, some Jews were physicians to Christians um, the worlds were not so separate that the artist might not have drawn from real life experience and visual evidence so you can see how
0: each object really allows us to spin a lot of different cultural narratives to take them rather in very different directions to look at things that are both represented and that are not represented, because sometimes the things that are not represented, right? The gaps tell us a lot more about what was going on than the actual things.
1: Um, I cannot thank you enough for, uh, for talking about this book. The conversations were magnificent. The objects were great. And, and just looking at the object, there are a lot of things that might escape us but when you explain them and when you draw our attention as an art historian and also an historian of Middle Ages, you draw our attention to particular parts of those paintings or objects. It just, uh, like I said, give you a complete different understanding of the Middle Ages. Alina and Barbara, thank you so much for uh, accepting this invitation and talking about this book on New Books Network.
0: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.